Praise the Lord. Well, before we get going uh, this morning, I just want to mention, uh, reiterate what Pastor Naren said uh, about the 31st, and uh, we are going to have our kids with us. And some of you go, oh, brother, you don't even know what you're asking. I won't mention any names. Uh, but it's going to be really great. And here's one of the reasons. I really want our kids to see us in this context. I want them to see. How many of you know it's powerful when kids see mom and dad worshiping God? That's good. And grandmas and grandpas and aunts and uncles. And frankly, just people in the church that they trust. There's something to that. And so that's one of the reasons that we are having a family Sunday. The other reason, uh, one of the other reasons, uh, one, we need more time to just spend together uh, and a fellowship. And so we're going to do that after service. I'm hoping that you will plan uh, to stay around for a little while as we share a meal together. Somebody asked me this morning where we were going to sit. And the answer is, I have no idea where we're going to sit or where we're going to eat. I'm sure we'll be a little bit spread out. Uh, but how many of you know that's all right? <clears throat> that's all right. We can spread out. It's going to be great. And so just excited to gather together. The third reason that we're gonna do a Family Sundays, we really want to, on, on occasion, it's a fifth Sunday if you didn't know that, but on occasion we'd like to give our, all of our workers, all of our volunteers, just kind of a day off to be in the service. Some of them, them work week in and week out, and uh, they just need time to come in and worship the Lord, something that you know I do every Sunday, I'm in here, I'm never teaching kids, I'm always in here, and so I get to worship God you know, in this room every day. And I think that our workers will appreciate just those moments to be here. Does that make sense, everybody? <clears throat> the other thing we're gonna do next week, uh, or sorry, the 31st, is we're gonna have water baptism. Uh, after the service, we're probably going to do it outside, uh, just kind of as part of our family gathering. So if you want to be baptized in water, uh, if you'd like, or your children would or whatever, please sign up and let us know that you want to be baptized and we'll have a list. And of course, if you show up and you didn't plan to be baptized, but you find out that you want to be baptized, we'll be able to accommodate you as well. And it'll probably be hot and uh, warm that day. So you'll drive fast, Right. <laughs> <clears throat> Praise the Lord. I'm going to try to work on my voice here. Eli told me I'm dehydrated, and that's why my voice goes bad. So I drank like three bottles of water this morning. So we might have to take a, a time out some, at some point. <coughs> and uh, I'll be right back, you know. Uh, just kidding. <clears throat> James chapter 2. We're going to start this uh, back into our series on James. And uh, just a reminder, we'll be in this until uh, probably the end of September as we get into uh, the rest of this book. I want to just reiterate as well, uh, this prayer model that we write every week, it is uh, printed for you. This is the idea is for you to use this in your personal devotional life. If you, if you uh, read the Bible, work, pray, uh, and serve the Lord weekend, day in and day out in a devotional time. This is just a little guide for you if you want to pray the scriptures. And uh, it's just based on what we're going over each Sunday. It is also in the Church Center app. Uh, Pastor Andrew loads it there as well. And so if you've not downloaded the Church Center app, download the app. Uh, in fact, everything that you need to know about what's happening in our church is on the Church Center app. And so I don't want to make a big commercial for that, but it's kind of like important for a communication piece for us. You can give there, you can sign up for stuff, that, stuff there. Uh, there's all kinds of opportunity for you. So if you wouldn't mind, download that search, just follow the directions and uh, you'll get connected. All right. <clears throat> Informal poll. How many of you, when you were in high school, now some of you got to remember a long way, but how many of you, when you were in high school, 
If you're honest with yourself, you are a cool kid. Yeah, yeah how many, you know, that's just curious. Just curious, how many of you were cool kids? It was an exclusive group. Okay, how many of you were not cool kids? Yeah, look at the room. <clears throat> On behalf of all of us who were not cool kids, I say to all the cool kids, I love you, but you know, <laughs> I, I've never been a cool kid. I, I've tried to be a cool kid. I even wore my white tennis shoes today so I can fit in with all my slick, cool pastor friends who are way cooler than I am. Uh, you know, there, there's just, how many of you felt that though? You felt like there was this group that uh, they were cooler than everyone else and they knew they were cooler than everyone else. And oftentimes if someone tried to break into that group or tried to have interaction with them, it was not received very well. And you know, there's movies made about this, like Mean Girls. <clears throat> not that I've ever watched Mean Girls. I just know, you know, that what it, kind of what it's about. And they're, you know, they're just, it's just this cultural phenomenon that uh, there's cool kids and then there's not cool kids. I have learned in ministry, it's the same way. There's cool pastors and there's not cool pastors. You hired a not cool pastor. Very sorry for you. Sorry. I will never wear skinny jeans. Thank the Lord. Nobody wants to see that. <laughs> when you're not a cool kid, and, and you know, I felt this the last few years uh, in my job at the district office, weirdly, um, you know, I'm, I, 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 I have felt sort of in, in the group that I'm in up until this last year, kind of on the outside looking in. How many of you know what that feels like to be kind of the outside looking in person? And it can actually be quite painful. It can be hard when there's a group of people preferring other people over you. How many of you know that's painful? That can, that can hurt. And that's really what James is getting into here. Before we get there, because James is going to talk a lot in these first 13 verses about the law of God. And, you know, when I'm reading this and I'm thinking about it and I'm reading commentary, I'm just like, you know, most Christians believe that we don't deal with the law anymore, that the law of God, and the 656 or 48 or 92, whatever laws in the Old Testament, you know, like you've got to wear this kind of cloth and you've got to do this kind of thing and you, you know, you got to wash and all these things. We don't really live by that at all. But how many of you know the law of God supersedes all that? There's a law of God that is a general law of God. Here's how Jesus put it just, just before we get to James, Matthew chapter 5, uh, verse 17. Jesus says, don't misunderstand why I've come. I did not come to abolish the law of Moses or the writings of the prophet. No, I came to accomplish their purposes. What was the purpose of the law? For God to have a people who are righteous and relate to him in relationship. That's the purpose of the law of Moses. He said, no, I came to accomplish it. And I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not even the smallest detail of God's law will disappear until its purposes are achieved. So if you ignore, listen, this is the key. If you ignore the least commandment and teach others to do the same, you will be called the least in the kingdom of God. Why is that important? Because I think right now we live in a culture, a church culture in the West that is dumbing down the things of God. 
It's causing the things of God. You know, it's, like, it's almost like we're going, well, that particular law of God is a little hard for Americans to swallow, so let's just set that one aside. We just don't want to, we're just not going to talk about that one. We're not going to say it doesn't exist. We're just going to put it aside. And then on the other hand, there's things that we're just flat out saying, no, we don't believe those things anymore. We're not going to live that way anymore. And Jesus is very clear. He's like, look, if you, if you teach that the least law of God is irrelevant and you teach that to other people, listen, you're in real, real trouble. You'll be called least in the kingdom of heaven, but anyone who obeys the laws of God and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Verse 20 is really important, but I warn you, unless your righteousness is better then the righteousness of the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Let's get down to verse 21, Matthew 5. You've heard that it was said, and here's, here's what I want to point out. You've heard that our ancestors were told you must not murder. How many of you agree? Probably a bad idea to murder. Only some of you really concerned at this moment. Uh, <laughs> in case you're wondering, Murder's not a good idea, right? <laughs> Again, a few of you. You must not murder. If you commit murder, you're subject to judgment. We'd all agree with that, right? We'd all agree with that. If you murder, if you break a commandment in that way, you're subject to judgment. But I say, Jesus, if you're even angry with someone, if you're even angry with someone, you are subject to judgment. Can I, can I just say that the law that Jesus established is a more difficult law than the Old Testament law of Moses. Jesus said, I'm not saying don't murder. I'm saying don't be angry. I'm not saying don't commit adultery. I'm saying don't even lust. Are you with me? You wanna say, we're not under the law. We're not under the law, fine. But Jesus' law is much more difficult than the law of Moses. It says, I say, don't even be angry or you'll be subject to judgment. If you call someone an idiot, and I won't take a poll if anybody's done that, you are in danger of being brought before the court, but if you curse someone, you're in danger of the fires of hell. Ah, you know, most of you probably read that before, but how does that change your perspective on maybe how you think about, talk about, and act towards people? The law is important. And James is bringing in chapter two, he's bringing the law of God back to the forefront of his argument about favoritism. Verse one, he says this, and this is the, you know, I got like four points. So here's the first one. Faith requires action to God's law. Faith requires. Look, if you say you have faith in Jesus, and James says, if you say you have faith in our glorious Lord, Jesus Christ, and you show favoritism, You broke the law. Look what he says. If you have faith, why do you favor some people over others? All through this book, James is admonishing us to put our faith in God and make sure it's a real faith. We'll get into more of that next week. And if your faith is real, if you have a legit, authentic faith in God, then it better have specific behaviors and outcomes in your life. Is that true? Like, I know, we're getting right up there close to the, to the edge. For some of you, right up to the edge of legalism. You're not going to tell me how to live. God said I'm free. Ah, you know, I agree. 
But I think if you have faith in God and if you have a relationship with Jesus, there are specific and thoughtful things that ought to result out of that. In other words, you don't get to say you have faith in God and maintain all the dysfunction and all the broken things and all the egregious things that you used to live by. You don't get to do that. You don't get to be a jerk to people and say, well, that's just my personality. Well, then your faith is shallow. Your faith is weak. That's what James is trying to say to us. At the end of chapter one, he's hammering us on doing what the word says, not just hearing the word. And now we get into chapter two and beyond in this book and he's making sure we understand that the result of our faith is character and the fruit of the spirit. I mean, just wait till we get to chapter three about the tongue. You're probably all trying to figure out what Sunday that is so you can be on vacation. I might change it up. No, I'm just kidding. He says in verse two, for example, suppose someone comes into your meetings dressed in fancy clothes and expensive jewelry, and another comes in who is poor and dressed in dirty clothes. If you give special attention and a good seat to the rich person, but you say to the poor one, you can stand over there, you know, you figure it out or sit on the floor. Well, doesn't this discrimination show that your judgments are guided by evil motives? Did you know that God cares more about the motive of your heart than he does your actual actions? Why you do something is as important or more important than what you actually do. So in the context of this passage, the the audience to which James is writing, uh, what was the big deal was like rich and poor, male and female, Jew and Gentile, slave and free. Those seem to be the four sort of dividing markers that we find throughout the Gospels and throughout the New Testament. They were all social statuses by which the, the culture and the society was built. So if you were a man, you had certain privileges that women didn't have. If you were a slave, you, had, you didn't have certain privileges that other people had. Does that make sense? If you were in Jewish, the Jewish world, if you were a Gentile, you didn't have the same privileges as if you were a Jew. If you were a Roman, you had different rights and abilities than if you were just a Jewish person being occupied. And so three things come out of this, I think. Three things come out of it. One, favoritism. So favoritism is the practice of giving unfair preferential treatment to one person over a group or a group at the expense of another. Favoritism is often based on things that are changeable, like socioeconomic status, rich people versus poor people. Does that make sense? Rich and poor. Now, Jesus said in the kingdom, there's no rich or poor. It doesn't matter if you're rich or it doesn't matter if you're poor. There's no, he's no respecter of person. So there's, it doesn't matter. But in that world, that was a big deal. And so this was a common practice. And I just say, the gospel has flourished among poor people to, to a much larger extent than it has among rich people. Does that make sense? The gospel takes root faster in third world countries than it does in first world countries. It's just, why? Because we don't have as much need for God. And so James is like, look, when this happens to you, you will look at that rich person and say, hey, they could really help us. If we could get this rich person saved and part of this church, 
then maybe they could help us build the new building we want to build. Or they could help us start that new ministry. Or they could help us do X, Y, or Z. And so let's give them a better seat. Or, you know, in our, in our context, let's not give them the Folgers. Let's give them the real good stuff. Praise the Lord. And so there's a favoritism that was in the church and is still in many churches. Now, we do this in our lives all the time. Based on somebody's looks, based on somebody's appearances, we show favoritism to one group or to another group. But the favoritism often leads to a second word, and this is the word I'm going to use mostly through the service. Uh, It's this word, discrimination. Now, I'll get to that in a minute. The unjust or prejudicial treatment of different categories of people or things, especially on the grounds of race, age, or sex. How many of you know that favoritism can happen based on things that are changeable or that fade or that can, can shift? Like the poor person gets a really great job, their socioeconomic status can change. Discrimination sets in when it's based on things. Now it's moved from things that can change to things that can't change like race and sex. And you know as well as I know, there are denominations in the world who egregiously treat women poorly. Is that true? And they justify it with misunderstood and out-of-context scriptures. And so it, it exists today, and it turns favoritism when not checked can turn into a discrimination. Now, let me give you an example in the Bible of discrimination. It's the Jews and the Samaritans. The Jews had great discrimination. Could the Samaritan woman at the well change her race and become something besides Samaritan? No, she could not. Yet most Jews would have discriminated against her. In fact, she says to Jesus, you can't talk to me. I'm a Samaritan. Because there was discrimination. Now when discrimination takes root and becomes truly evil, What sets in is racism, prejudice, discrimination, or antagonism directed against a person or people on the basis of their membership in a particular racial or ethnic group, typically one that is a minority or is marginalized. Now, this is not a sermon on racism. I do believe it's a sermon on discrimination. Here's the problem. Don't throw things at me yet. Here's the the problem. These are hot button issues right now in our culture. Now, they're issues of the human heart. All of them are issues of the human heart that cannot be solved through legislation or even education or whatever. There will always be people who are racist. There will always be people who discriminate. Why? Because America didn't invent it. It's been around since like the beginning. Does it make sense? So we don't have the corner on the market Let me give you an example. Uh, As I mentioned, I've worked in Eastern Europe quite a lot in my life, and I have witnessed firsthand racial discrimination or racism towards the people that are called the Roma people in Eastern Europe. These are outcasts. They're not even allowed to live in the city limits. They have to set up camps outside. I mean, you think racism in our country is rough. Man, it is ugly over there towards the Roma people. Look it up. Or I come from uh, the church that we attended in Indianapolis before we came here, had a whole bunch of, of ethnic Africans in the church, like immigrants from Congo and Sudan and other places that were fleeing, perse- fleeing war and you know, stuff like that. Can I just tell you, there were some of those folks that had such discrimination against one another because of their tribes that they wouldn't sit in the same room. 
Like, this is not an American thing. This is a heart of man thing, is all I'm trying to say. And James knows that. He's like, guys, we understand that this, this stuff happens in our lives. He's saying if our faith is genuine, then we will be people without favoritism and without discrimination and certainly without racism. Jesus has made a way for these things to be defeated in our lives. And so if we're gonna, if we're gonna live by the laws of God, our faith is gonna require certain kinds of transformation and movement in our life. Our faith demands that we become people of humility and people of love. We've got to respond with our faith to God's law. The second thing I'll mention is this, God's laws are upside down. God's laws don't make sense in our natural way of looking at culture. James says this in verse five, listen to me, dear brothers and sisters, hasn't God chosen the poor in this world to be rich in faith? Aren't they the ones who will inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him? Don't you want to be poor now? But you dishonor the poor. Isn't it the rich who oppose you and drag you into court? Aren't they the ones who slander Jesus Christ, whose noble name you bear? This whole concept is kind of upside down for a first century believer, but it's upside down for us as well. Uh, you know, most people, saved or unsaved, believe in this idea of the survival of the fittest. Get all you can. Live your best life now. We're, I mean, that's a funny thing we say now, right? He's living his best life. It's kind of a funny thing we say. But culturally and historically, as the world has gotten richer, that's become our goal to get everything we can in this life, to live our best life, to have all the stuff, to, to not have any need. But Jesus said this, if you wanna save your life, you have to lose your life. If you wanna live, you must die. He said, he said to the rich man, if you really wanna be wealthy, then sell everything that you have and give it away. Come and follow me. Why? Because true wealth is not found in the balance of your bank account. True wealth is found in how great your faith Culture says if you're rich or you're in a place of influence, and you're, then you're the most important person in the room. Don't we see this posturing all the time in politics? Don't you see it? The posturing. Do you think any of those knotheads have your best at heart? Anybody believe that? Maybe some of you do. I'll just tell you, they don't. You know what they have at heart? Money and power. That's my opinion. That's not in the Bible. That's just my opinion. But what I observe is like, you know, I used to think like, oh, you know, I used to say like, oh, the government, they're doing it on purpose. They're trying to tear it all down so that they can build it up the way that they want. I don't think that's true. They're just trying to get more money. They're just trying to stay in power. It has nothing to do with the utopia. They, any, whichever side you're on, they think they can build. It's not that at all. They just want more money and they want to be in power. And so Jesus is really, or James is really clear, like that's kind of normal for the culture. You know, we see this posturing all the time and we see it happen in our workplaces and we see it happen in our schools. We see all these things happening. And listen, James is not despising the rich. He's not saying that rich people or people of means cannot inherit the kingdom of God, cannot be wonderful things in the kingdom of God. In fact, he's kind of echoing something that Paul says. Here's what Paul said. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise. Not many of you were influential. Not many of you were noble, of noble birth. 
But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise and, God, and chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things of the world and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one can boast. I mean, God's goal is that we boast in him, right? Not in those things. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom That is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Boast in the Lord. What James is saying is that discrimination has no place in the life of a believer. We cannot do those things to other people. And here's one of the reasons why. Because such, what what we could discriminate against or what we could uh, show favoritism toward, such were some of you. Such were some of us. Some of us were poor. Some of us were unwise. Some of us are still unwise. Some of us, all of us, were sinful. Some of us were lowly. Some of us were outcasts. Some of us, the majority of us, were not cool kids. We were part of the world. And and James is saying, look, don't Look down on other people. Don't discriminate other people because many of them are exactly where you began. Second thing we shouldn't discriminate. He says discrimination sets us up as the judge of men. It, makes, it puts us in a place that is only a place for God to be. So to show partiality or to discriminate makes one as God. It sets you up to be a certain level over other people. And this is not our job. If you look at the world, I mean, I'm great at pronouncing judgment. How many of you are really good at pronouncing judgment on people? Like, it's almost a spiritual gift. <laughs> but when I do it, I'm wrong. I'm wrong. Why? Because it's not my place. It's God's place to, be, to sit in judgment over people at Walmart. <laughs> it's not my job to do that. Thank God he's not made any of us the judge. Amen. He's the only righteous judge. And look, when he will judge, and he will judge, we'll get to that at the end, when he judges, his judgments will be just and righteous. Yours will be flawed. Mine will be flawed. And so when we discriminate or when we show favoritism, it sets us up as judge over others. The third thing I'd say is that it reveals evil thoughts. James says it comes from evil motives. What does that mean? Well, it boils somebody's value in this world or in this life down to one or two things. But God sees more. How many of you are glad when God first called you, he didn't see you as you were, but he saw you as what he wanted to make you? How many of you are glad for that? I'm glad for that. Sometimes I wake up and I still thank God that he doesn't see me for who I am today, but he sees me for who he's making me in the future. And what he's doing today has nothing to do with today and everything to do with where God is leading me. I'm glad, I'm so glad that he doesn't do that for us, but when we discriminate, we're boiling people's value, we're devaluing them to base that only on what we see today. 
Fourth thing I'll mention is discrimination marginalizes against the poor and the humble. We talked about that already, but it is the, it is the poor and the humble. Jesus said in the, in the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I want to be poor. If you haven't figured it out yet, he's not only talking about finances. Fifth thing I'll mention, discrimination shows a disgraceful attitude a disgraceful attitude. It dishonors, humiliates, shames, and insults a certain person for a certain reason, whether, whether it's something they can change or not change. It causes those things to come in them. And I'll just mention this to you. It also shows discrimination. When you discriminate, it does the same thing to the, to the person who created that person. When you look at somebody or I look at somebody and say, they're not good enough. Oh, they're just... You guys know what that is? No? That's fine. I won't say it. When we look at people like that and we discriminate or we say things and and, and act a certain way towards certain people, what we're really saying to God is, God, you didn't know what you were doing when you made them. Boy, if you'd made them differently. You know, sometimes we see this with people, with handicapped people. Eh, God, if you'd made them differently, you know, you know, you, you should know what you're doing. That's what we're saying to God when we discriminate or when we treat people that way. And the last thing I'll say this is discrimination shows foolish behavior. Not sure there is a better way to show yourself a fool than to discriminate or to engage in racism. I'm not sure there's a bigger way to show yourself a fool James says that the rich and the prestigious, the high, the ruling class usually oppress the poor. He says they do everything they can using the laws of the land to advance their position and to make more money and be in a better place. They use their influence to slander the name of Christ. And they slander his name by denying him by telling us they don't need him, but we don't need him, by trying to destroy who God is. People like that forget that we will all someday stand before God in judgment. Now, don't get me wrong. I think James is pretty harsh on rich people here, okay? He's very harsh on people that have means. And in that day, there was a good reason for that. Now, let me just tell you what Jesus has done. I know many people, many, many, many people who have means that God has blessed with, with financial blessing and riches and the ability to do things, who use that gift, who use those things that God has put in their hands to build the kingdom of God and do great things for the Lord. I mean, in fact, it's probably six or seven times as many people that I know who live like that than who live the other way. Does it make sense? They love the Lord and they want to serve God. And so God looks at somebody and says, man, I can trust them with riches. I can trust them with earthly things. So I'm going to put it into their hands because I know they will use it for the kingdom of God. So let me just give you a hint. If you want more than what you have now, be faithful with what he's put in your hands now. Because if you're not faithful with what he's given you, he's not going to give you more. 
So I, I look around the church, and including this one, and I see people that give and give and give financially with their time, with their energy, with whatever, and I see God blessing their life. Why? Because God knows he can trust them. They're going to write the check when I tell them to write the check. And he blesses them for that. So I just have lived by that principle. If you want God to bless you like that, and you want to be one of those people then you have to be faithful with whatever he's put in your hands right now. It's really that simple. It's the law of sowing and reaping. I'm not gonna get into too much to finances, but I just want you to know if you want, if you want that, be faithful. Here's the third point, the royal law. James gets into the idea the royal law is the law of love. Verse eight, it's really how we destroy discrimination and favoritism in our lives. Indeed, it is good when you obey the royal laws found in the scriptures. Love your neighbor as yourself. Have you ever heard that before? You guys heard that one? But if you favor some people over others, you are committing a sin. You are guilty of breaking the law for the person who keeps all the law except one is as guilty as the person who has broken all of God's laws for the same God who said you must not commit adultery also said you must not murder. So if you murder someone but do not commit adultery, you've still broken the law. If you discriminate against someone, you've broken the law. If you're a racist, you've broken the law. James says pretty clearly, you've committed sin. The contrast is pretty specific. Loving people is being consistent with the royal law. He calls it royal law. It's the only place in scripture where it's called that. It's the supreme law. And this, particularly, he's talking about the great, great commandment. Love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. We see how important this law is. By the way, Jesus didn't mention uh, in that passage in the New Testament, he didn't say, he didn't list out all of the other six commandments. There's four commandments that deal with our walk with God, and there's six commandments that deal with our walk with one another. Anybody notice that before? That's why when Jesus, when the guy answered and he said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and you can correspond or correlate those four things to the first four of the Ten Commandments, and then he said, love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said, if you do that, you've done it all. Why? Because you're not going to murder yourself. You're not, you're not going to commit adultery on yourself. You're not going to covet over yourself. You know what I'm saying? We love ourselves. How many of you love yourself? If you don't love yourself, you should love yourself. It's pretty normal. But we should also love our neighbor as we love ourselves. It's the royal law. It's the great law. It's the one that changes everything. The entire law of Moses is summed up in that single command, love your neighbor. Why? Because love covers a multitude of sins. It'd be really great if our culture could figure that out. Love is really the key. And we talk about it and people say it, but what they really mean is I'll love you and we'll have love with one another as long as you agree with me. Can I just say the commandment is not qualified? He doesn't qualify love your neighbors yourself with as long as they agree with you, as long as they feel the same way that you do about social issues or political issues or whatever, or as long as your doctrine is the same. It's not qualified. He says love your neighbor as yourself, period. We're lacking punctuation in our culture too, so let me emphasize the period. <laughs> period. Love your neighbor as yourself. Last thing, God's law 
requires justice. God's law requires justice at judgment. So whatever you say, verse 12, whatever you say and whatever you do, remember that you will be judged. Well, that just puts it right there in front of you, doesn't it? Whatever you say or whatever you do, remember that you will be judged by the law that sets you free. There will be no mercy for those who have not shown mercy. But if you've been merciful, God will be merciful. Just want to reiterate to you, we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And the Bible's pretty clear that we will receive based on what we have done, how we've lived our life. James has two specifics, what we say and what we do. He says our speech will be judged by God, and so it should be salted love, kindness, and truth to everyone. Our speech should be salted With love, kindness, and truth. Here's how Jesus put it in Matthew 12. Make a tree good and its fruit will be good. Or make a tree bad and its fruit will be bad. For a tree is recognized by its fruit. And see the analogy. A Christian is recognized by how they live. Make a Christian good and you'll be able to see it. Make them bad and you'll be able to see that too. Tree is recognized by its fruit. (laughs) You brood of vipers. How can you who are evil say anything good? For the mouth speaks what is in its heart. Listen, if I'm not careful, I can, have, I can be really critical. And I won't ask for a show of hands, but some of you are the same way. And I need the Holy Spirit to help me learn how to not be so critical in my speech about things or others or whatever. And I know some of you are in the same boat. Some of you men, especially, you have a criticism that destroys rather than builds up. And I want to challenge you to take this word from James and from Jesus and Matthew and change the things that are inside of you so that what comes out of you is love, kindness, and care. Because out of whatever's in your heart is what comes out of you. A good man brings forth good things. And likewise, an evil man brings forth evil things. But I tell you that everyone will have to give an account on the day of judgment for every empty word they have spoken. For by your words you will be acquitted, and by your words you will be condemned. How many of you need to go home and call your mom and ask for forgiveness? Our words are a big deal to God. Do you see that? Our words are a big deal to God, and James reiterates that we're going to give an account for our speech. He also says we're going to give an account for our actions. Our speech should be salted with love, kindness, and truth, but our actions should demonstrate love, kindness, and truth to everyone. And I read this. Worship team, if you'll come. 1 Corinthians 13. We read this in the context of romantic love. But can I tell you that this was not written in the context of romantic love. Now, it's good, husbands and wives, if you live this passage in your marriage. But this is not written to husbands and wives. This is written to everyone about how to love. You with me? 
Love is patient. You want to love your neighbor as yourself? Be patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. But love will never pass away. You want a litmus test for how you love others? That's it. How's your patience with people who drive you crazy? How's your kindness? How's your pride? Let those who boast, boast in the Lord. We are to receive people and really reach out to them through our speech and our behavior, no matter who they are. Why? Because we're going to be judged. And the promise is that we will receive judgment reciprocated for how we've lived our lives. You with me? Everybody with me? I'm almost done, I promise. Here's what I mean. You guys can play something. If we love, we'll be shown love. If we forgive, we'll be forgiven. If we give, it will be given to us. If we demonstrate mercy, we will be shown mercy. I love how the NIV ends this passage. It says this, mercy triumphs over judgment. Aren't you glad for that? Aren't you glad that the mercy of God for many of us will triumph the judgment that we deserve? We will not receive what we deserve because of his mercy. Thank God. Thank God for that. It's difficult in our culture to live without favoritism and discrimination. And I would challenge you to, you know, because it's easy to go, ah, I don't do that. Oh, I don't do that. And just dismiss. Can I challenge you to spend some time this week, maybe in this prayer model, asking God to search your heart, to make sure that those things don't reside somewhere deep inside. You're not living a discriminatory life. You're not living a life that shows favoritism towards some. You're not letting your speech and your actions cause you to face the judgment of God. What do we do? One, I think we repent. We repent for ourselves. Some of you were raised to be discriminatory. Like you heard it and you lived it and you saw it in your parents or your grandparents. So I believe in this repentance moment, I gotta have a moment with this because I think in this repentance moment, some of you need to repent for your family, your family of origin. God, forgive my family for being racist, for being discriminatory. Look, my grandpa is one of my heroes, one of my heroes, but he grew up in Alabama and I heard things come out of his mouth that shouldn't have. And I remember that as a child, hearing him say things, I went like, you can't say that. So sometimes we repent for things we didn't do. I didn't do that to him, I wasn't part of that. 
but I don't want that hanging on in my family and in my life, amen? We repent. Number two, we determine with the help of the Holy Spirit to make the changes in ourselves to be transformed. In other words, don't point the finger at other people until you've pointed the finger at yourself. Work on you. Three, choose patience and mercy with others as they're transformed. And the reality is, some people who are discriminatory or racist never will change. Never will change. Can I say that even in those cases, we have to watch our speech and our actions towards them? As much as it might disgust us, as much as we might hate it, it might be awful to us. It's not our job to say harsh things and mean things and be rude. And lastly, rest in the mercy of God because he's patient with everyone. Aren't you glad he's patient with us? Aren't you glad he's patient? I'm glad he's patient with me. I'm glad he's patient with my speech. I'm glad he's patient with my actions. I'm glad he's patient with all those places in my life, and I know you are too. His mercy triumphs judgment. His mercy in our lives triumphs the judgment that we deserve. Thank God. Thank God. Let's pray. God, thank you for this word. Thank you. God, it's just so awesome that this book written a couple of thousand years ago is relevant today to the culture we live in. Why? Because these things are problems for the heart of man, not cultural. They're not cultural. They're not in a society. They're part of who, we, who humanity is. So I thank you that you've addressed it, God, that you've written it into our heart. Lord, I pray that you would search my heart and that each of us in this room would allow you a moment to search our heart, to see if there be any discrimination, to see if there be any favoritism, to see if there be any wrong attitudes or wrong motives or, or things that don't align with the word of the Lord. In loving others as ourselves, God, I pray that you would search us and find those places, God, that may be incongruent with your word so that we can be transformed by your power. Jesus' name. Speak clearly to our heart, oh God, in this moment. Heads bowed and eyes closed. Here's what we're going to do. I want you to kind of, I really want you to focus on yourself right now. I want you to examine, as they lead this worship song, would you examine what resides in your heart? What kinds of things are in there that God needs to address and develop and maybe eradicate? I'm not gonna ask you, I'm not gonna embarrass you, you know, I'm not gonna, I'm not even gonna ask you to come forward. Right now, for the next couple of minutes, I just want you to ask the Holy Spirit. Would you do that right now as they sing? Ask the Holy Spirit. Ask the Holy Spirit. Listen. 